Chapter 1. Moving Towards the Light. Understanding what it means to magnetize. In the 2003 movie The Last Samurai, Tom Cruise plays a United States mercenary who represents a Western world hungry to dominate in feudal Japan. His counterpoint is Ken Watanabe as Katsumoto, a samurai who represents wisdom and maturity. Set in the late 19th century, a time of great cultural and technological upheaval in Japan, The Last Samurai is a half-decent bit of Hollywood action, but give it a little thought, and it also raises questions that are particularly relevant in our rapidly changing world today. Why is it that when we see the humility, respect, tolerance, and grace of the samurai, we admire him and yearn to be more like him? Yet as the credits roll and we return to our daily existence, it is to a world that continually urges us to want more, to work more, to chase success. Is this the only way today? Why can't we be more like the samurai who adapts with the seasons, who honors his truest self, and who understands success in other ways? I believe that questions like these, questions that test the very basis of our motivations and our being, are being asked more frequently today and will become ever more common in this new age of cultural and technological upheaval. For as far back in recorded time as we care to look, the world has been ruled by a certain type of ambition, a crude, man's world ambition of driving ideals of hierarchy, competition, and always wanting more. The success of this formula should not be dismissed by any means. In recent centuries, since the Industrial Revolution in the 1700s, this ambition has provided vast capital profit, fueling great human development and advancements in science and technology. But today we are entering a new era, and wherever we look it appears to be reaching its sell-by date, wrecking destruction on the environment, on the animals we share the planet with, and ultimately on human well-being. Debt, fear, and consumption drives us to want more. But more of what exactly? We have fallen into a trap laid by our own ego-driven behavior and overseen by our anxiety and stress. If we're not anxious or panicking, it's seen as a sign that we're not ambitious. And if we're not ambitious, then of course, we're not successful. It's time to stop, to gather our thoughts, to recalculate the fundamentals that govern our lives. A starting point is this realization. As humanity grows wiser, our ambition matures. As our ambition matures, we must consciously reevaluate who we are and what success means to us. Once you let go of the primal desires that are the modern human default setting, you allow yourself the opportunity to start making decisions from the heart, to switch your value system towards a space that attracts calm. You begin to realize that making less of a splash allows you to glide through the water more gracefully, more calmly. Calm brings with it flow, which allows you to achieve so much more than the frantic splashing of someone with blind ambition. As humans of the 21st century, it's our duty to understand the challenges we face as a species confined to this magnificent planet we call Earth. Because we have produced great thinkers, launched rockets into space, and invented loads of cool stuff, we tend to feel pleased with ourselves in general, and we like to think that we have got it all figured out. I'm not convinced we do. We live in a whirlwind of innovation, disruption, technological advancement, and rapid change. Everybody is scrambling to keep up. If we stop to take a look at the way we run our lives and operate our businesses, one thing becomes clear as day. Western society has made the act of chasing seem normal and decided to call it ambition. <laughs>
But ambition can be misleading. And for far too long, we have celebrated and rewarded this culture of chasing. Of chasing after money and power and similarly defined goals. Of chasing more. But what are we actually chasing and when did the race begin? It's time to rethink what success is and how as people and organizations measure it. It's time to change our approach by becoming more elegant, curious, and excited. It's time to realize that we can't simply be bystanders in an ever-changing world. It's time to stop chasing. It's time to magnetize. How do we magnetize? From the teachings of Buddha to the concept of karma, the law of attraction has been expressed in many ways by both ancient and contemporary thinkers. In its most simplistic interpretation, the law of attraction states that like attracts like. Your ability to magnetize exists whether you're aware of it or not, whether you're positive or negative. You make daily decisions to choose whether you want to attract success or failure, however you define them, whether you want to live a more conscious, elegant, and curious life, or whether you want to keep your head down and stick to the old rules. We are constantly magnetizing in every aspect of our lives, whether we're running a business, interacting with friends, or simply walking into a room. Changing how you do it can be a scary prospect, but it will move you from a stagnant space to one which you can develop with meaning. When you are in a space of positive magnetism, the momentum builds and your access to energy is incredible. It feels like electricity running through your body with your ideas and focus and creativity flowing. Magnetize in three steps. To magnetize is to take control of your own future and in so doing transform from a state of panic to a state of calm, from chasing ambition to seeking meaning. The first step is a process I call micro-inspection. How to confront the obstacles in your mind and start making decisions that are led by the heart. Then comes mega-exploration, examining the qualities of future forward and conscious businesses. Finally, you need to bring it all together into your own reality with the macro perspective, understanding new technology and trends and embracing the future. This holistic approach allows you to magnetize into your life the right type of people, appropriate access to opportunities, and the money and power you need for sustainable success. To truly achieve, you must combine micro-inspection, mega-exploration, and macro-perspective. When you learn how to magnetize, you attract a tribe of people who you can work and socialize with in harmony. Your tribe should consist of elders, advisors, and friends who complement your skills and personalities and bring out the best version of you, the best eye behind your eye. You'll find that the tribe changes for the better, the type of decisions you make and the discussions you have. And as a result, your ability to magnetize will rub off on those around you, encourage them also to step out of their comfort zones and to participate in shaping the future. The not-so-innocent bystander. If you refuse to actively adapt and evolve along with the changing environment, you risk becoming a bystander of the future rather than an active participant of it. By consciously resisting the role of bystander, you open up the doors to becoming a creator of your own reality. To illustrate the consequences of taking a back seat rather than being a doer, let's briefly discuss an obtuse human who slithered his way into the annals of history nearly two millennia past, Emperor Nero. Nero is usually remembered in reference to the Great Fire of Rome in 64 AD, which ravaged the great capital of his empire for six days. According to some accounts, Nero was blamed for starting the fire so that he could redesign parts of the city that weren't to his liking. Apparently, he was struggling to get the Senate's approval to redecorate. Tacitus is the historian most often credited with the image of popular standing 
that defines the emperor. Nero watched Rome burn while merrily playing his fiddle. Nero chose to pin the blame on the new sect that had emerged in the city, the Christians, and their persecution followed. The stories of Nero's cruelty and tyranny are many, feeding hapless Christians to ravenous lions, public crucifixions, using the bodies of those he'd put to death as human tortures to light up his garden at night. How did the spectators, the citizens of Rome, react to this kind of behavior? They did nothing. At worst, they attended the spectacles of horror that Nero represented, thus fueling the market for them. At best, they simply stood by and let it all happen. Which raises the question, though the individual who orders human bodies to be used as kindling is clearly the prime villain, what responsibility rests at the feet of the bystanders who did nothing to stop it, thus enabling the atrocities to continue? The reality of Nero's rule may not have been as cut and dry as we hold it today, but the moral still stands 2,000 years later, and most of us are, to some extent, guilty of standing by when bad things happen. Choosing not to be a bystander is both a moral and environmental decision. In a broad context, can we continue to eat vast quantities of factory farm meat and drive gas-guzzling cars with all the morals and environmental consequences they incur and little, if any, benefits over other viable options? Industrial-scale animal farming is a prime example. Because we have normalized excessive consumptions of meat, much of it produced under dubious conditions, to put it mildly. But simply because bacon and burgers are considered mainstream food items, does that mean mass livestock slaughter is always effective or humane or even in our best interests? Slavery used to be normal. It used to be normal that women were not allowed to vote. All across the world, and infamously in the United States and South Africa, blatant segregation by race used to be normal. If we don't actively choose to change, we become perpetrators and indirect supporters of things that are so obviously unsustainable. I have long been affected by the story of Nero, and it later got me wondering about the times I myself had been a bystander. Classified as a white male when growing up in South Africa, I have seen all manner of derogatory, racist, chauvinist, and sexist scenarios. What might have I done differently? Today, it is harder to justify such cultural and societal silence. We're all realizing that certain things are not acceptable and we must make our voices heard in standing up against them. Similarly, in business and in life in general, we can't simply watch and hope from the sidelines. In my work, I have seen so many businesses act the bystander in the face of disruption, and it seldom ends well. The bystander effect. In social psychology, the bystander effect occurs when there are a number of people standing by and watching. For example, the emergency situation unfold. When more people are around, intervention by one individual is less likely. It's as though everyone is watching and thinking, maybe someone else will do something about it. Well, someone is not always ready to jump in because it's easier to just wait until someone else does. If nobody does anything, the group consensus tends to be that everyone can just do nothing. In our context, the question is now clear. Are you going to be a bystander of the future? or a creator of it. I believe that the days of chasing personal gain in and of itself are numbered. Today, having power means you can play your part in paving the way for the next generations, in literally creating a better world. To do so, to be the creator of lifelong success, 
you will need to harness the ability to be emotionally intelligent and to adapt to change effortlessly. IQ, EQ, and AQ. When we arrive in this world, each one of us is born with a variable capacity for acquiring certain abilities, skills, and talents. And we don't exactly have any choice in the matter. As life unfolds and we tap into what nature gave us, we find that some skills are typically more celebrated and valued than others. For instance, intelligence is highly desirable, and it generally helps in satisfying the most basic human need, survival. While some studies, notably those of educational psychologist Lewis Terman, suggest that people with higher IQ are more likely to be goal-orientated and more likely to have a higher income. There's also evidence that suggests that they have a tendency towards melancholy and substance abuse. Being terribly good at something doesn't make you perfect. In fact, it can also create an anxiety around having to live up to your capabilities. Terman, most active in the first half of the 20th century, studied children with high IQs. Over a long period of time, in the end, a good proportion of those kids grew up to be successful doctors, lawyers, and scientists. But then there were those who had equally high IQ who ended up as police, workers, cleaners, and technicians. As Terman's fellow Stanford alumni, Mitchell Leslie, summarized more than half a century later, the big differences turned out to be in confidence, persistence, and early parental encouragement. Although we have known for a long time that extraneous factors beyond the holy grail of superintelligence affect an individual's success, we still continue to celebrate high IQs because most of history's greatest humans have been scientists, thinkers, or artists who have been able to introduce innovative and groundbreaking change in the world. We stand in awe of those who possess a superior capacity for complex reasoning and can't resist celebrating skills in the workplace or applauding accolades in the assembly halls of academia. We have been idolizing the idea, if you have a high enough intelligence quotient, then you will be pretty fantastic at life. Yet the coveted IQ has had to start sharing the front row with another strong contender for measuring brilliance, the emotional quotient, EQ. By the 1960s, emotional intelligence was becoming increasingly important for measuring performance beyond our logical reasoning abilities. It was found that by mastering social and personal competence, we can become more aware of our own emotions as well as the emotions of others. Come the 1990s, EQ was considered to be an invaluable aspect of good leadership and personal success, and its status is still growing. A high EQ allows us to become more mature in our approach to life, instead of simply relying on the capacity to solve problems clinically. The great news is that emotional intelligence can be learned. So even if you're not born a social butterfly, with hard work, you can develop the ability to work out a crowd and fit in more comfortably. In fact, harnessing your inner dialogue, something I describe in detail in my first book, What's Your Moonshot, is one of the many ways in which you can become more attuned to your emotions and better manage the impact that thoughts and feelings have on your life. Today, both IQ and EQ have to contend with the new kid on the block, the adaptability quotient, AQ. In short, even if we possess the intelligence and charm to get ahead, we might not have the ability to adapt to change without sinking. When we become IQ-focused, we totally discredit AQ because we think, I am a top accountant, I studied accounting for years, and now I work for this great company. What more could I need? But complete reliance on IQ doesn't allow for flexibility. 
It celebrates repetition on the same behavior, whereas AQ celebrates learning new things and adopting new behaviors. Personal example. Though I was never an academic, I had a high IQ that helped me hone my business skills early in life. I started my first business as a teenager, and by my late 20s, I owned six franchise restaurants across three cities. I was good at what I did, and I was a quick-thinking negotiator and operator. Unfortunately, all those years ago, I lacked the EQ and AQ to sail my rapidly growing business through the inevitable storms that arose. I failed to adapt repeatedly during a particular challenging spell and that ultimately signaled my doom. By 28, I was bankrupt. There's much to be learned from my example, which will return to in due course, because it resonates with so many people who are trying to adopt new healthy habits and ultimately want to become the kind of person who evolves effortlessly with change but who are finding it difficult to change their way of thinking and get started. AQ is a highly sought after talent in disruptive environments, like those so prevalent in business today. Like EQ, but unlike unattainable genius level intelligence, we can all significantly increase our AQ by choosing to adapt to change with a smile on our face and a dash of excitement coursing through our veins. By focusing and relying on what we were good at five years ago and what we studied 10 years ago, we won't always find the best solutions relevant to the moment. If we keep our eyes on what is necessary for the future, we are moving into and what is required of us to shift. We can adjust to changing consumers and markets with minimal effort. Behaviors such as flexibility and agility are increasingly valuable. They prevent us from getting caught up in the formulas that made us successful in the past. But AQ is not just about dealing with the lofty concept of change. These days, adapting can mean swallowing some pretty big pills. For example, how do we come to terms with the reality of advancement in robotics and automation? For someone with a low AQ, the idea of robots entering the workplace is no doubt as frightening as it is intimidating, and understandably so. A 2016 survey conducted by the World Economic Forum concluded that artificial intelligence will obliterate an estimated 5.1 million jobs by 2020. Such a game-changing development needs to be handled with foresight, optimism, and opportunism. And so, a high AQ individual might shrug off the prospect of losing out to Mr. Robot and conclude that when one job is lost to tech advancements, another one or two or five might be created. This sentiment rings particularly true in Sweden, for example, where 80% of the population have positive views about the role of robots and artificial intelligence. According to Vla Johansson, the Swedish Minister of Employment and Integration, most Swedish union leaders will tell you that they are not afraid of new technology, but that they are afraid of old technology. A refreshing stance that is crucial if we want to progress without fear and loathing of the kind robot who took our mundane job and gave us a better one. While the robots work and drones fly and 3D printers print, rapidly altering the way we live our lives, we also tend to forget that the current Western education system for the masses was formalized in the industrial age. As my good friend and education disruptor Mark Sham explains, life in the industrial economy was typically viewed as a series of discrete segments, school, work and retirement. But this thinking is no longer viable as we have entered the era of lifelong learning. The sooner we learn how to learn for life, the better our chances will be of making meaningful impact. It's time to start celebrating creative, adaptive behavior, not just transient skills and knowledge. To move ahead and magnetize, we need to acknowledge 
that change begins the moment we recognize it. Once you see it, you have to own it, figure out how to deal with it and adapt accordingly. Moving towards the light. The question you must now ask yourself, am I running away from the darkness or am I moving towards the light? Unless you're a vampire or a photophobic, moving towards the light is the only direction you should be going in. If needs be, wear sunglasses. If you accept the challenge to change and adapt, you're taking the first step towards the proverbial light. It's easy to think that they are the same thing, but moving, magnetizing towards the light and running away from the darkness are fundamentally different. Both directions are goal-orientated and ambitious, but one carries a nuance of anxiety while the other offers the prospect of excitement. The underlying driving force can become an extremely powerful ally or enemy in your pursuit of adaptation. When you run from the darkness, you find yourself fighting against the things that you're trying to eliminate, whether financial struggle, personal rejection, lack of acknowledgement or bad health. You're running away, but you never seem to get away. It's a relentless quest in which you focus on all the things that you don't like or want in your life. In the business world, companies that are running away from the darkness are those failing to adapt. They take no initiative but react desperately, emulating competitors, shaving margins, operating in panic mode. Growing companies, on the other hand, can't get enough of new and innovative thinking, the thinking required to build dreams. In my early career, I ran from the darkness and frantically sought out profit above all else. When I reinvented my career and became a speaker and trend strategist, I started seeing a familiar anxiety permeating high-profile boardrooms and exco meetings. Sometimes, it was as though an entire room of people were holding their breaths and panicking in unison, reciting a familiar dread mantra, we're not reaching our sales, or we're not making profit. This is exactly how a business tries to run from the darkness, with predictable remedies, cut costs, retrench people, push sales harder. So many of us are on this merry-go-round today constantly comparing ourselves to people and businesses around us, trying to follow what others are doing, existing in a space of anxiety, never creating our own way forward. We fall into the trap of feeling as though we never have enough, an unfortunate sentiment that seems to be part of our global reality right now. Running away from something also means that we are negatively energized. We are constantly looking over our shoulder, worried about whether or not to trust the people we are doing business with, looking for gaps and shortcuts, looking for quick ways to make money or to be noticed. Rather than trying to be our best selves, we try not to be our worst selves. If you've ever woken up in the middle of the night worrying and schwitzing about the things you need to do or want to change at work, that's what trying to run away from the darkness feels like. A far better feeling is when you wake up in the night to contemplate your grand plans and game-changing ideas and are drawn forward by your highest excitement that's moving towards the light. Being pulled towards something comes with a different type of energy. Your intentions are different. You're filled with curiosity and wonder and a desire to create. You want to stay up at night, not out of worry, but because you love your work. It's the same type of energy that pulls you across the room to a person you've never met before or towards a book in a bookstore that will change your life. It's the energy that powers you when you magnetize. To magnetize the things you want in life, you need to be ready and equipped to receive those things. And so, to discover what drives us, what haunts us, and what limits us from being more elegant and conscious in our approach to business and life, we begin with the process of micro-inspection.